Well, we left off last week with Mary turning to Gabriel and saying, How can this be, for I am but a virgin? And now Gabriel is going to invite Mary into God's joy. Now, to do that, I want you to imagine that Mary is standing face to face, not before a precious moments angel, but a mighty warrior from the heavens, and that warrior from the heavens answers her and says this, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, who's been barren, she even has the nickname barren because she's never had a child, she is going to conceive and have a child. For with God, nothing is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Mary, probably on her knees at this point before the angel, oh my goodness, that God would be with me. And her response to, with God, all things are possible is, let it be done unto me. Your maidservant, as you've said. Now, At one level, this is this beautiful invitation of God into joy, into the story of joy. But her life is about to get very complicated. Her circumstances are not going to be a lot of joy. Potential divorce because of this. Shunned looks from people in the neighborhood counting, when were you married and how old is your child? Potential stoning for being pregnant out of wedlock. And yet, despite all of the ramifications she could be thinking about, would be rightfully worried about, she says, if this is what God wants for me, if this is part of the joy story you want to have for me, let it be done unto me. Let it be. That is the attitude God wants when he invites us into his story. Let it be done. Now, that phrase got real popular, of course, because of the Beatles. Let it be, let it be, Mother Mary came to me. But did you know that song is not actually about Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary? When he was writing the song, the Beatles had a lot of conflict going on. And he had a dream about his mother, Mother McCartney, coming to him in a dream and saying, Hey, don't run toward all the friction. Don't run toward all the division. Don't run toward all the conflict that's going on. Let it be. Be a peacemaker. Try and work things out. Run toward joy in this. And yet when he asked, hey, did you use the exact same phrase, use of, of, of Virgin Mary, and, and you spoke of Mary, is that, is that what you're talking about? And as a brilliant marketer, he said, the song can mean whatever you want it to mean. Just keep buying it, you know. In fact, Catholic tradition shows that there's a couple churches built in Nazareth around the location where Elizabeth, uh, where uh, Gabriel appeared to Mary. This is one of those locations, this famous well that's been modernized over the years, modern-day Nazareth, and then they rebuilt it in 1898 and expanded it here at the Virgin's Fountain right here in Nazareth. Some of that's related to some apocryphal writing, some of that's related to church tradition, but here is this actual spot that the angel comes to Mary and says, I want to invite you into my joy. Now, how's she going to respond to her circumstances about to go into the toilet, and yet God is with her? How is she going to respond to this? Well, look what happened. She's in the northern section of Israel, up here in Nazareth. She is going to have to make it all the way down to the Jordan River, down the Jericho Road, make it over to Jerusalem, and then get to the hill country. 
Now, a typical person could travel about 20 miles per day at pace, and this is about 100 miles. This is a four- or five-day journey. If I was making that journey, it might be, oh, my goodness. How am I going to tell my parents? Oh, my goodness. How am I going to tell my husband-to-be that I'm pregnant? I mean, I'd be like doing the Eeyore dance on my way down to the hill country. Look what it says that Mary did. Now, Mary arose in those days, and she went to the hill country with haste. She runs. With haste, she runs to where God is working. With haste, she wants to see this other person that God has spoken to. With haste, she's running toward joy, running toward God, running toward the plan God has for her. With haste, she gets to the hill country. 100 miles she's traveled because she wants to be where God is and wants to be part of the joy he has for her. That's the question we're going to look at today as we look at this section of the Bible. Do you run with haste toward joy? Do you run with haste toward God's work? We're going to look at two words today. Immerse and rehearse. And I have a tendency not to immerse and rehearse God's promises or God's joy. I have a tendency to immerse and rehearse worry. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh my goodness, that could happen. That would have been my journey down to the hill country. Sometimes we immerse ourselves in our fears and we rehearse them over and over and over again. We run toward fear. We run toward worry. We run toward uncertainty. Oh my goodness, it's so uncertain. Oh my goodness, we rehearse over and over. It's so uncertain. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to my marriage? What's going to happen with my kids? What's going to happen to these circles? What's going to happen to this business deal? What we're going to find from Mary, I think, is so painfully practical that you can run toward joy and run toward God when life runs into you. <laughs> because that's exactly what's going to happen to her. How do we run toward joy when God seemingly has let life run into us? So we're going to begin with Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is going to immerse herself in these God moments. So she's down in the hill country, and as she gets there, she's going to immerse herself in three different ways into the story God has for her. Now remember, she's been hiding out for five months since the promise of the child John the Baptist in her womb. Why five months? Maybe she's worried she's going to miscarry. Maybe she's embarrassed to be an older woman who's pregnant. Maybe she's not sure God's really going to bring this to completion. And this becomes the first God moment where she immerses herself in this actual story that God has for her. Mary comes in, and and from a distance, Mary actually yells, Hey, Elizabeth! And the passage begins with this, And it happened. What happened? That's going to tell us. That at the very moment that Elizabeth heard the greeting from Mary, Elizabeth! That at that very moment, she turned and the baby leaped in her womb. Now, she's been pregnant for five months. She's probably felt a few kicks. But this is like the Holy Spirit kick. Kapow! Kaboom! It's like dun 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 dun. There's something going on inside the womb there that she is painfully aware the Holy Spirit has come upon her. It's like, wow! She is so aware that God is in this moment. 
But it's also a fulfillment of a prophecy made just a few verses ago to Zacharias. He said, this is how you'll know. He's a Nazarite. No wine, no cutting his hair, no strong drink. And the Holy Spirit will come upon him from his mother's womb. Remember that promise? So this is a very specific moment. And maybe this is why she's been hiding out, to have the confirmation. But she feels it. God has come and dwelt in me and in my child in the womb. And one of the first ways you can immerse yourself in the truth of God moments is to realize that God has had a plan for you even from your conception. God's had a plan for your life from your conception and even before. Psalms 139 says that while you were being formed in the womb, God watched and had plans for you and hopes for you. And when you face uncertainty or fear, you need to immerse yourself. Wait, 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 wait. God has been watching me form since I was in the womb as a purpose for me. So whatever I'm scared about, whatever I'm fearful about, God, I'm in his hands. Now, God doesn't inhabit blisters. God doesn't inhabit warts. God doesn't inhabit skin tissue. He inhabits people. And so here we see the Holy Spirit dwelling on and coming upon John the Baptist in the womb. And certainly there are implications for, for pro-life and one of the reasons why Christians take that life begins in the womb. But I don't, I don't want you to think about this as a political passage. I want you to think of this as basic Christian theology personal application. God watched you being formed in the womb. And God had a plan for your life even before you were birthed. Immerse yourself in that truth. Then she responds, having the, 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 the Holy Spirit come upon the baby, and she says, oh, man, who am I? You know? She spoke out loud and she said, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why would it be granted to me that the mother of my Lord, and she recognizes, my baby and the Holy Spirit just told me, that's just not another baby coming, that's just not my relative who's pregnant, that's God in there. And who am I wow. that God would allow me to be here and to hear that greeting? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting came to me and sounded in my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And here we see it again. Mary travels from Nazareth running toward joy. And by being part of the story, it fills Elizabeth with joy. And she shares her joy, which allows Mary's joy to go up. We have this joy circle going on here. And it's incredible humility. Mary's saying, let it be done to me. Man, that you choose me. Elizabeth's saying, oh my goodness, that God would choose me to be the one who birthed the child that would give and prepare the way for the Lord. And if you're going to immerse yourself in truth, another truth to immerse yourself in is this humility that God of the universe would choose to dwell in me. Now he's dwelling in John the Baptist in a way that his spirit has come upon John the Baptist, which is different from the way he's come upon Mary, where God is actually in there. This is fully man and fully God. But in the New Testament, this idea still rings true because we're temples of the Holy Spirit when you become a follower of Jesus. The God of the universe has granted to live in you and live in me. And so when you're facing uncertainty or difficulty, one of the ways we run toward joy is saying, wow, God, I'm a temple 
of the Holy Spirit. God lives here. And whatever I'm facing, I'm not alone. Whatever resources I lack, I have access to his wisdom and access to his strength. God, I want to immerse myself in the reality that you are with me and I am a temple of your Holy Spirit. And then Elizabeth says something pretty amazing. Third way we can immerse. She says to Mary, Mary, the God who began a good work in you is going to bring it to fulfillment. And because you believed, God's going to fulfill it. And I think this is such a great promise for each one of us. Blessed is she who believed, and maybe she's sort of winking or smiling, thinking, not exactly what Zacharias and I did. Zacharias doubted and was mute because he didn't believe. God still fulfilled it. I've been hiding out here for five months. But you believed. You leaned fully in to God's promises. You leaned fully in that God's going to do what seemed impossible. And God brought about fulfillment. And part of running toward joy is exactly that. God, I'm going to believe you over my circumstances. God, I'm going to lean into you over what's around me. And I'm going to trust that you will bring about fulfillment of your promises. So how do we do that? How do we immerse ourselves in truth? Well, some of those are the principles we do. I read an interesting book this summer. It was called Blind Spots. It's sort of a graduate-level ethical dilemma book with a lot of practical implications. They talked about the human brain is very, very resistant to truth. We know what we should do, and we want to be the kind of people who do what we should do, that we actually predict we'll be more moral than we really will be, and we remember being more moral than we really were. So it affects both our past and our future. So you say, you know what happened in that argument last night, is you said this, and you said that, that's not what I remember. We remember ourselves being more moral than we are. And we predict, oh, if I was in a situation like that, I would definitely trust, I would definitely do the right thing. And the truth is, we have gigantic blind spots related to our aspirations. And part of immersing yourself in truth is when you have a fight, and a a son, a daughter, a colleague, a spouse, says that you are insensitive or disrespectful or, or, or arrogant... You actually have to immerse yourself in truth and saying, you know what, that does sound like something a sinner does. And I am a sinner. I think that Jesus had to die for something about this. And instead of defending myself initially, I have to say, you know what, I need to immerse myself in truth. There's a darn good chance that in that fight I was wrong. And I need to own a part of that and apologize for part of that. As I look to the future, I immerse myself in truth saying, God, I like to think in my own moral, ethical capacities I would do the right thing. I'm not sure I will. God, I need your help for the future. I need your wisdom and your strength. Immerse yourself in your need for God. The same thing is true when you think about all the tragedy happening in our country and what happened with Las Vegas. How do you take a tragedy like Las Vegas and immerse yourself in truth in how God sees it? As I mentioned before, there's really four philosophical worldviews when it comes to suffering. And when you think about an injustice and an evil act, there's four options. Suffering's your fault. That's karma. Why did the innocent people die? Because they weren't innocent and the universe was punishing them. Now, doesn't that feel horrible? But that is an actual view of the problem of evil. And your brain rejects that. Your heart rejects that. That's called karma. The Bible speaks against karma. 
Another example is that, oh, it's an illusion. This world is just a dream world. You need to realize you're not really in the world. You're not really a person. Your cravings uh, for attachment are causing suffering. The more you realize that, that evil is just an illusion, you're going to finally get detached from that. And Christianity rejects that. No, it's real. And that was a real injustice, and real people were harmed. Atheism or naturalism says, well, you need to get used to it. The whole process of evolution is a whole... Atheistic evolution is this idea that there's always been death and suffering. And in a world of blind, random chance, people are bound to get hurt. So get used to evil. And you've got to want to get used to evil. It's not supposed to be this way. And which is why the Christian answer to the problem of evil, why is it a problem, is because it's a result of a broken creation. The reason we don't, the reason we get angry when we see injustice, the reason we get mad when we see tornadoes or hurricanes or, or, or evil people killing people, is because we're like, it shouldn't be this way, and we're comparing this world to some other world. We've never seen it in history, but we, we know it shouldn't be this way. And there's still an echo left in our hearts of that original creation that we're comparing the world we're in now to the world that once was and hoping for a world that will be again. And so Christianity actually gives you the fortitude to be able to say, yes, it shouldn't be this way. That is evil and that is wrong and it's not natural and it's not karma. Yet there's also four solutions to evil and Christianity has the best one. I'll give them to you in the same order. Hinduism says the reason evil gets crushed and, and how it gets dealt with is through the not-again process of death-rebirth cycle. And when you do bad things in this life, you'll be crushed and you'll come back in the next life. And through that process, not again, yep, not again, not again, yep, not again, evil will be dealt with over billions and billions of circles around the wheel of karma. Not really. The Buddhist answer is it's not really happening. It's just a dream world. But if you've had friends or if you've struggled with evil, if you're like Mary, struggling in a world filled with Roman conquest. People are tempted to reject Christianity because of an, uh, a God that allows evil things. But let me give you the solution of atheism to evil compared to the solution of Christianity to evil. Atheism says, not ever. When will that man be held account? Not ever. He just died. He's rotting to death. Christianity says, not yet. Not yet. He will be held account. Good will eventually be rewarded. Evil will eventually be punished. And it is frustrating living in the not yet. But for those who reject Christianity's not yet, they turn to the empty answer of not ever. Jesus says there's a yet. And the same way you're comparing this world to what once was, you're also the hope that there could be, and there will be, a time with no war and no hurricanes and no pain. There will be a time with no more wars and no more injustice. And so the Christian view of evil allows you to take something so devastating as what's happening in our country and actually immerse yourself in truth to understand it in the overall narrative of what God has done. And in the meantime, we offer comfort and hope and support to those we love. Immerse yourself in truth. Now what's Mary's reaction? And Mary's not going to immerse as much as rehearse. And it's pretty amazing what she does. Mary gives us a principle that what we magnify, we rehearse, and what we rehearse, we magnify. When you zoom in and magnify your worries, you rehearse them around and around in your head. And the more they go around and around in your head, the bigger they get. What we magnify, we rehearse, and what we rehearse, we magnify. And Mary bursts into song. It's one of Mary's songs here. And she sings, and look at the opening line of her song. 
My soul magnifies, zooms in on my problems. No. On my worries. No. On the unknown. No. On my fears. No. I magnify the Lord. I zoom in on who God is. And by doing so, what you magnify, you rehearse. God is so good. God is with me. God's got a plan. And what you rehearse, you rejoice. Which means what? To rejoy yourselves. To do joy again. So if you want to run toward joy, if you want to rejoy yourself, you need to figure out what you're magnifying. Because what you magnify is what you rehearse. And what you rehearse can rejoy you or re-hopeless you. And she's going to show us how to rehearse who God is and what he's done. Magnify that. Rehearse that to rejoy our engines together toward God. It's like a snowball. You know, when you make a snowball, start small. And as you roll it around, as you rehearse it around, as you make it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that works with worries. That works with fears. And it also works with God's promises. The more you rehearse it, the more it's magnified. And if you're zoomed out on the truth about God and the truth about the world and the truth about yourself, you end up with this gigantic promise of joy in your life. Dr. Gottman did some research on what people rehearse. In his uh, book, The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work, he studied couples, one of the longest studies of couples, I think, in human history. And what he found is that couples who began to get into contempt for one another and critique of one another, they began to rehearse over and over in their mind all the weaknesses and all the idiosyncrasies and all the things that drove them crazy about their spouse. And the more they rehearsed it, the more it magnified And the more contempt came, and the more anger came, and the more criticism came. And it was not only ruining the present relationship, it was also ruining the future relationship as it was forecasting forward, not joy, but i got to get out of here. He's never going to change. He's never going to get this. But what was very interesting is it also ruined your past. He tested couples and found that more contempt you had in the present, you actually began to reinterpret your story in the past. You remember the bad things about your honeymoon, not the good ones. You remember the bad thing that happened in your wedding day, not the good things. That, that when you rehearse bitterness, it destroys your present, your future, and your past. And some of the things he mentions that we meditate on when we come to problems, is we, we, we think to ourselves, oh my goodness, this circumstance, this situation is permanent. It's never going to change. It's never going to go away. God's never going to do anything different. Two, it's personal. Life is out to get me. God is out to get me. You rehearse God's out to get me, it's never going to change. You're going to just go down the toilet into hopelessness. And pervasive. One area of your life's going bad and you're like, everything stinks. Everything's falling apart. But if you can catch yourself not rehearsing that things are permanent, not rehearsing that things are personal, not rehearsing that things are pervasive, you can do what Mary did. Magnify the truth about God, the truth about your circumstances, and therefore rehearse what's true and rejoice yourself. Two ways she does that. The first way is she rehearses who God is. Now look at how she meditates on God's character here. God, he who has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, she begins to roll. Man, God found me a 13-year-old junior high girl, and, and he regarded me. He thought of me. He had a plan for me. And behold, henceforth, all generations are going to 
call me blessed because of what God has done. See how she's rehearsing this in her mind and magnifying it? She goes on. Yeah, when I think of you, God, you're the one who is mighty. Wow, you're powerful. More than that, you've done great things for me. Now, she could have just as easily said, oh, you've done some terrible things for me. I'm probably going to get divorced. I'm probably going to lose my relationship. My parents are probably disown me. I'm probably going to get stoned. Thanks a lot, God. E or. And, and she would have been justified, right? But look what she's... God has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Oh, God is so merciful. God has not given me what I deserve. He gives me mercy and love and tenderness. And his mercy is not just on... It's on those who fear him from generation, the past, to generation, the future. And as she meditates on God, who he is, she's now created this gigantic magnifying principle of the joy that God is with her like he has been in the past and as he will be in the future. Rehearsing who God is. Facebook popped up a memory for me from seven years ago. It's one of my favorite pictures. It's my daughter and I dancing at a wedding. And you look at that picture, it's like, well, that must be great. I mean, life is going so well. Look, Look how perfect Chad's life was going seven years ago. Just last year, this is Mr. Quinn and Beth and I. He likes bacon and eggs. So, oh, bacon! So we dressed him up like bacon for Halloween last year, and Beth and I, Beth and I were Dominoes. But I remember this picture seven years ago, because that was when Quinn just turned one, and we had just found out that he had blindness, and we're yet to find out he had autism. And that picture that always makes us all look so good on Facebook wouldn't look so good if there was a fact book. That the chaos we felt toward God, the chaos we felt toward our circumstances. And one of the, the commitments I've made, I remember writing my journal, and I was really angry at God. And, and actually, I grabbed my pencil like this, and I wrote, I will not be bitter. And, and it, was, it was that level of, I'm going to fight against bitterness. I'm not going to rehearse What's wrong? I'm going to rehearse who God is. I don't want bitterness to take over my life. And even today, one of my nightly practices when I tuck Mr. Quinn into bed, whether it's a day that he punched himself in the head half the day and we couldn't stop him, or whether it's a day that he gets his little eyes within one inch of your nose in a way that you let nobody else invade your personal space, and with this puppy dog eye and beautiful, innocent smile, he says, Hi, Dada. I love you. And you're captured with a sense of innocence and joy that it just transcends the world. Whether it's a punch yourself in the head day or a kiss daddy in the cheek day, I tuck him in every night and I say, God, thank you for the blessing that Mr. Quinn is in our life. And continue to help Mom and I become the people we need to be to shape him into everything you have for him. Give him the mind of Christ. Help us with potty training. Eight years we're still potty training. In Jesus' name, Mr. Quinn says, Amen. And what I'm trying to do is actually use this promise from Romans that says you rejoice in tribulation. You thank God for what he's going to make you into through the circumstance you go into. 
Rejoice also in your tribulations. Uh, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we, re- we glory, we put weight into our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope that will not disappoint. And part of that rolling around who God is, is God, I can't wait to see how you're going to make me and the person you want me to be through this. I can't wait to see how you're going to form my character and develop my perseverance. I can't believe the hope I'm going to have that you can work through any circumstance, even one like this. That's what happens as you learn to rehearse the truth about God. Did I say it was easy? No. No. But the deliberate decision to do it, you end up magnifying what's true and you rejoice yourself that God is with you. The last thing she does is she rehearses not just who God is, but what he's done. She begins to meditate in all the ways he's worked. And these are all action verbs she refers to. For he, God, has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He put down the mighty from their thrones. He exalts the lowly. He fills the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. For he has helped his servant Israel. He just rolled, helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy. Oh, he used to speak to fathers like Abraham and his seed forever. And you know what? The same God who spoke and helped and filled and exalted and scattered and strengthened all those generations in the past. See how she's zooming in and magnifying it? Now rehearsing it? That same God's going to strengthen me. That same God's going to fill me. That same God's going to help me. And she's rejoying herself through song, rejoying herself through biblical meditation, rejoying herself through prayer and worship. That's what she's doing here. By looking at what God has done in the past and saying, oh, I remember sitting in synagogue and just wishing I could be there when God used to speak to Moses and used to speak to, to Isaiah and used to, used to, used to. She's going, wait a second. I'm in the story. God is speaking to me now, wants to use me now. In the same way, God wants to speak to you now. Say, run toward joy. i got a plan for you. Immerse yourself in my truth. Come near me. And don't do it this way. Run toward where I'm at work. Embrace where I'm at work. And one of the ways you can do that practically is really take time to journal and think about and meditate on how faithful God has been in the past to rejoice yourself in the present and future. We're looking through a bunch of pictures right now because we're getting a series ready for this coming January. And I came across one of my favorite pictures I just hadn't seen in about six years. And it's uh, this one here. It's right up against that window. And that is me getting my notes together for the first service in this building on January 2nd. We weren't open to the public in this building. We said, don't invite your friends. We want one week to get all the kinks out. We're going to start services on January 9th. I was taking the picture right there. My friend Bill Heckle took the picture. And I just remember Bill's story about coming from agnosticism to coming to Christ here at our church. I think all the folks who had given faithfully. I thought about years earlier, we had this big tent we set up in what's now our current lake. And we had what was called Church on the Green. And we said, you know, really what we're trying to do as a church is impossible. We can't take people who are natural and turn them into spiritual. All we can do is create an environment where God might work. And we hope this building will be a place that God might work. And so I remember at that church on the green tent you see on the top picture, we built like a butterfly enclosure out of the screen doors from my windows in my house. 
and I had some butterflies in there. My daughter and I caught running around this property. And I stuck the enclosure around my daughter, and she's in that enclosure with all these butterflies flying around. I said, all we're trying to do as a church is create an environment, a space, where God could transform caterpillars into butterflies. And then we each took little colored pieces of paper, unfolded them, and went from looking like a caterpillar to looking like a butterfly. And we set golf tees in, because this used to be a golf course, and we took our little golf tees and we pushed them all over the property and saying, God, make this a place that you transform caterpillars into butterflies. There was a big red balloon, 12 feet under. This, all this dirt was added later. 12, a three-foot balloon right here, and we gathered and we prayed for this space, that God would make this space right here a place that butterflies got transformed from caterpillars. That people would grieve here for funerals, and we've had a lot of funerals here the last six years. People would celebrate together as families. People would hunger to know God's word. People would go verse by verse through the Bible and be equipped in their understanding of, of Jesus and God. That people would feel comfortable inviting their friends to an environment that was designed to help them hear the gospel for the first time. Then we ran down to another big yellow balloon about 100 yards from here. That was going to be the children's area. We prayed. We put butterflies all over there. And even to this day, we dump the 310,000 cubic yards of dirt over top of those butterflies. There's still paper butterflies all over this building. When I think about what God has done in the past, how faithful he has been. We built the building in 2008-ish, just as the financial crisis hit. There was a lot of prayer and a lot of like, oh my goodness, no one in the country is building. Why would we build now? And to see how God worked in building this building for pennies on the dollar compared to what it would have been if the economy had been in full swing. Amazing faithfulness. Amazing ways God has worked. And if God has worked so faithfully in the past, and we rehearse on that, I remember this sermon. Usually I'll prepare a sermon, one or two drafts, and I'm done. That sermon for January 2nd, I prepared 18 drafts of it. I called up some of the elders and I said, it still stinks. I don't know Why? It's still not good. And, and we were praying together, and the message I ended up giving, it felt like God gave to me. And it was, we're building a place that's good enough for God, knowing that nothing's good enough for God. But that's why it's so beautiful. Because through Christ, Jesus made us good enough for God. That's the message of the gospel. We are good enough for God, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus did. And that's why we wanted to build a space where God might work and people could see a quality that inspired them and drew them to who Jesus was, who who the Bible is and who God is. How are you doing on your immersing and your rehearsing these days? Are you running toward joy? Are you rejoicing in God regardless of circumstances? Are you immersing yourself in God's truth? Do you have disciplines in your life to immerse yourself? Are you keeping yourself from rehearsing lies? I'm telling you, you need a pattern to do it. It might be journaling. Maybe it's a small group. You know, several have been signing up for the last couple weeks. Small groups. I need other people to help me with my blind spots of being a dad or being a husband or being a leader. Maybe you need to get into a group. We've got dad's groups on Mondays. We've got men's groups on Tuesdays. We've got women's groups all over the place. Maybe you need someone to help guide you in this discipline because you've spent 50 years rehearsing fear, worry, and anxiety. You need someone to help you. You need the discipline of prayer to catch yourself meditating on God versus your, your worries and doubts. Whatever it is, God is inviting you into a story 
But the only way you're going to find his story is to learn how to immerse yourself in what he's doing and rehearse the truths about what he is and what he wants to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for just the practical reminder that we can live and we can dwell and we can pursue you the same way Mary did. In the midst of that, Father, will you grow our faith as we magnify you, as we meditate upon you, Father. Fill us with joy that we would rejoice ourselves by reflecting on you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today.